I'm Edaena Salinas, and this is the Women in Tech Show, a show where women in tech talk about technology and career development. Today's guest is Andrea Goulet, CEO and co-founder of Corgibytes. When Andrea was 24 years old, she started a consultancy where she worked with some of the world's largest brands. We talked about how she leveraged that experience to lead Corgibytes, a company focused on continuously improving code bases through software remodeling. Andrea also explained the process of working with legacy code and the community that she built around it called Legacy Code Rocks. We also explored topics on building inclusive environments in tech and her personal experiences in the field. I really enjoyed this episode because Andrea shares the path to starting Corgibytes as well as the early exposure she had to the world of computers when she was a kid. If you have any feedback, please write a review on iTunes or send me a tweet at Tech Women Show. Andrea Goulet, CEO and co-founder of Corgi Bytes, is joining us this morning. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So when you were... 24 years old, you started your own consultancy focused on sales and marketing, and you work with some of the world's largest brands. And later on, you went to a high school reunion, and things changed a bit for you career-wise. Can you talk about what happened at this reunion? Yeah, I uh, reconnected with one of my really good friends from high school, Scott, and um Scott was kind of your archetypal computer programmer nerd from the 80s. So if you imagine kind of any given 80s movie, you've got kind of the skinny guy with glasses and braces um, who's always always spending time in the computer lab and really into video games. And that, that really was Scott. And um, we really connected in high school because my parents owned a graphic design company and they ran it out of our house. My dad had quit his corporate job in 1985, bought a Macintosh computer and said, this thing is going to change the world and was, you know, 15 years ahead of his time when it came to doing Photoshop and desktop publishing. So I felt very much, comf very, very comfortable with technology. I was really interested in it. And so Scott and I would usually sit down over lunch or well the way that he says is that he had a seat and I had a circuit so he would stay put <laughs> and was kind of in the middle of the lunchroom but I would always make time to stop by and ask him and you know talk to him about at the time I remember Yahoo had just you know changed the way that they did their search results and I was really interested in these things so we we went our separate ways Scott got his degree in computer science and I got my degree in marketing and business law And we reconnected at our 10-year reunion. And Scott came up to me and said, I have solved a really interesting engineering problem, and I can't sell it. And from what I can tell, I have a marketing problem. And so he asked if I would come on board to help him build this business as his CEO. And so the next day, we got together, and we talked about 
you know, what that might look like. And I gave him some advice and basically told him that he had not done any research into product market fit, but that was okay. All he had to do was find something that everyone needed and no one else wanted to do. And I talked to him about, you know, audience segmentation and uh, psychographics and demographics and all the stuff that I was really comfortable with and, you know, had been doing in marketing, you know, since I had originally launched my uh, consulting career when I was 24. And he basically said, I, that sounds really interesting and really necessary, and I can't do it by myself. So he offered me 51% of the company if I would come on board. And at the time, it was 51% of nothing. But um, but yeah, so we built it. And um, so yeah, now what we do is we found that thing that no one wants to do and and everyone needs and and that really is with um making legacy code easier to work with yeah. so and, and we we'll dive, get yeah and we'll uh, talk about that uh, later on corgi bites yeah so yeah. so i just wanted to focus a little more first on your upbringing yeah do you in when you said you were four years old and your parents quit their jobs and they got a macintosh in what ways were you being exposed to technology? Did you get to play with the computer or? Yeah, I mean, the computer was seen as another tool. So, I mean, I, I don't, I sometimes call myself the world's oldest millennial because I think the millennials <laughs> differentiate themselves from, um, from Generation X because they feel like they're digital natives. And I do not have a time in my life that I remember without a computer. And so I think that really culturally is what makes me feel very comfortable as a millennial, even though age-wise, I should be <laughs> with a different generation. And, um, you know, so for me, my parents were just like, my dad especially, incredibly visionary and said, this is the future, learn it. And so, I mean, I remember playing with HyperCard. Um, we were having a conversation about this with the team earlier about like how we got into programming. I didn't even know that HyperCard was built on small talk and that I was programming. I just thought I was playing. I just thought I was having fun. I remember my dad, uh, he got us a keyboard in when I was like maybe in fourth grade. So this was like, you know, mid nineties and he got a MIDI keyboard and he's like, this is how you're going to learn how to play piano. So rather than, I mean, he was, it was very, very, very invested in technology. And I had access to many things that were incredibly novel at the time and today seem like, yeah, that's just how you learn it, right? There's, yeah, so I feel incredibly privileged. And, um, you know, there's another story is my dad, like, I took a test, a career test. I was maybe in, like, sixth grade. And it said that I would be a good executive assistant or secretary. And my dad goes, well, you're just going to have to figure out something else to do because there's not going to be any of those when uh, when you <laughs> grow up because everybody's going to have personal computers that they put in their pockets. And again, this was like maybe 95. And he really saw, because he was, he was such a, he had been following Steve Jobs from the very beginning of Apple and just really saw what his vision was and transmuted that to me at a very early age in this way of, you can do anything. You can be anything. No one is smarter than you who has built all of that stuff. Um, and so in a way, seeing Steve Jobs and seeing all of the things he's built really reminds me of my dad. And really, you know, he kept saying, you're going to be a world leader. And, and just I had all of these like very empowering experiences with technology. But the one interesting thing was that I never I felt like I could consume technology, but I I was so suppressed by being a woman 
in this culture that I didn't feel that I was allowed to create technology, which is a really interesting dynamic that I've had to kind of wrap my wrap myself around, mm-hmm. you know. And I want to ask about that because last week I saw a great documentary called Code, yes. Debugging the Gender Gap. Have you seen it? I have. It's yes. so good. It's, it's really good. So good. I'll add a link in the show notes. And in this documentary, they mention what, what you mentioned earlier, that during the 80s, movies and TVs popularized a computer geek, a yes. certain stereotype. Do you remember being exposed to the stereotype when you were growing up? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember like watching things like Flight of the Navigator or War Games, right? Or The Wiz, right? In all of these, you have the cute, nerdy kid like Scott, who's the one who is doing the technology. And you have the girl who's the champion of that person. So, and, and I also had a defining moment when I was in third grade. I had a bully come up to me and say, girls are bad at math. So you can't do math. And there's a lot of research now. I was talking to someone um, over at uh, Girls Who Code recently, and they were sharing with me that they've, done, um, they've been looking at research about girls' confidence levels, and it peaks at nine years old. And, and that was me. That was exactly me. I mean, exactly that. I, I mean, my confidence from that point, just I, I remember going, oh, well, I guess I can't do math. And just really feeling it. So even though I had access to all of this technology, I had parents who were incredibly empowering. The cultural um, weight and the cultural influence meant that Scott got to go ahead and become a computer scientist. And it was very difficult for me. And even in things like our computer science class, A, we had one, which most schools don't. So we were very fortunate there. But it wasn't an elective. I mean, it was an elective. So for me, I would have had to opt in. And that's been changed now. Just last year, our old computer science teacher now does a lot of advocacy work. She works for, um, she has a nonprofit called Code Virginia. And they've gone in and changed that. So now you can take computer science along with a science. So for me, had I had the option of taking computer science instead of chemistry or physics, I totally would have done that. But for me to have to say an elective which I felt was very much a part of my identity, right? I was very pressured culturally by my peers to go into singing, which I love, right? And theater and band and stuff. And yeah, one, one, one of the other guests that I had on the show, Vidya, is a professional singer, actually, since she was three years old. So, wow. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And so, you know, I felt pushed there, but I, I didn't feel like, like I was nervous that if I picked computer science as my elective, like what would people think of me? Whereas if it was kind of just a normal, oh yeah, that's a science, everyone has to take it, right? Would, would I have been exposed to it earlier and discovered that I actually really like it and I have a knack for it? Um, took me a lot longer. It wasn't until my late 20s that I really was like, oh, I could be a software developer. <laughs> I didn't even know that I was able to do this. So, so so when you saw this documentary or when you've been reading about this issue, looking back, you think you kind of were affected by this? It, yes. Having- if, if Scott is the archetypal, you know, nerd from the 80s, I am absolutely the archetypal child of the 80s, girl of the 80s who was left out. Absolutely. And every piece of research that comes out, I feel deeply and I feel very personally Um and in some ways, that's that's a good thing because that means that I can really trust my own experience um, 
on how things need to change. And so I can look back and say, okay, what would have gotten me as a woman interested and what would have gotten me? And I can employ that at my company um, to make sure that we've got, you know, women who love coding and are good consultants and can work with us. So, you know, in some ways it's been a challenge, but in other ways I feel very fortunate because I'm able to see those cracks in the system so clearly and I'm able to then go in and fix them. Yeah. And one other thing that they mentioned was the women were some of the first programmers. Yeah. You know, like Ada Lovelace, Grace Hopper, and you yeah. took their names. You so, using yeah. So my daughter's name is actually Ada Grace. <laughs> uh, yes. I wasn't sure because it didn't. It just said, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So Ada a reminder. Grace. Yep. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, so my, <laughs> my son, who is named Simon after Firefly, because we're <laughs> it was Simon Tam and Firefly. So so Simon, he he all the time he goes Ada Grace. He's she's named after two computer scientists, <laughs> and then he can even say like you know Ada Lace wrote assembly language, and then Grace Hopper wrote the first compiled language, and it's like. But I think that that's really important to remember that women had been in this from the beginning and we were only shut out. I think the the thing that really struck me was there was a Planet Money episode where they dove into this really deeply and and interviewed a bunch of women. And it was exactly along the lines of of me and kind of one I didn't go in and and it talked about kind of systemically how how we cut women out of computer science. Um and So yeah, so the more stories and the more research, and the more investigation, the more I'm like, yeah, this happened. And instead of getting like angry about it, right, it's like, well, let's just fix it, <laughs> right? We know the problem now. Let's just, let's make it better. Yes, definitely. So let's talk now more about Corgi Bites. You did, you've done several interviews, one of them with Hansel Minutes podcast and also Software Engineering Daily. Mm -hmm. But for those that aren't familiar with it, what is Corgi Bites in a little more detail? Yeah, so Corgi Bytes focuses on maintaining and modernizing existing applications. And the way that I think of it is we don't build the application, much like we don't, like if you live in a house, right, or an apartment complex, you know, we're not the people who go in and build the house, but we are the people who come in and make sure that A, the house is clean and that the plumbing is good, we're the roofers, right, all of that maintenance stuff that has to go into taking care of, you know, the structure that you're basically living in. Um, that's a good analogy for what we do with the code. And then same thing with, you know, if you live in an existing house and you want to remodel the kitchen, like we, we go in and do that or build an addition, right? So we take existing applications and then using um, really good communication and being really good technologists, we're able to transform um, existing applications that have a lot of really good business use, but, you know, aren't working as well on the technology side. Maybe they have some security vulnerabilities. Maybe they're not pushing features out fast enough, whatever it is. And we just slowly and incrementally make things better over time. So, um, yeah, and, and I love it. I love it. It's, it's a really, really validating and rewarding work, um, even though it sometimes seems like it's not very sexy because, um, You don't get code that's old and broken, but still valuable, unless it's really valuable. Which is also similar because I, similar to what you're saying earlier about the 80s and stereotypes and feeling out of place. Sometimes I, I feel 
why do people feel maybe ashamed to say they work on legacy? It's just like if you work on features, you're cool or something yeah. like that. I don't like that personally, but yeah. Yeah, I don't either. And I've and I think that's actually me being an outsider in tech has given me a lot of empathy for the people who like software maintenance, because you're exactly right. There's no community for them. So we built one, right? So we have one called LegacyCode.rocks. And there's about 20 or 200 or so folks who are like, yeah, I really, given any choice, I would enjoy fixing a bug rather than building a feature. And, you know, how that came about was the way that we managed projects for so long was we had the feature team and we had the release. And then after the release came out, we would move to what's called an operation and maintenance crew, so O&M. And that was usually a skeleton crew, and that's where good developers went to die, right? Like, your career went to die there because you didn't have any opportunities for advancement. And so, you know, a lot of the best people got pushed into features. And Scott even talked about, because he very much is this, he loves, loves, loves doing maintenance. And he said that even being on a team, he would say that he wanted to do the maintenance, and his boss wouldn't let him. They would say, no, you have to be on features. So what we've really focused on is, you know, we're looking now at a landscape in terms of software and how it's built that we don't have end dates and our release cycles are getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter to the point where you're developing in real time. And so in that, it, it makes a lot of sense. Like you've got terms like continuous integration, continuous deployment, continuous improvement, you know, can, I even say continuous estimating because you're always having that conversation about budget. It's never like a one-time thing that you produce. It's incredibly responsive. And so if you look at legacy code kind of in that way and focus on really more of the communication systems and, um, you know, kind of how we got to this point, you can then say, well, this is where some of the most complex and interesting engineering problems live is in this world of legacy code. And so what I've done, you know, in part a lot because of my background, right? Like I'm the visionary from my dad, you know, I, I saw the technology and kind of have a good sense of the industry and the landscape and I'm able to get in touch with that really quickly. My marketing background, you know, my sales background is I've been able to just take this idea of legacy code and kind of turn it on its head a little bit and say, we're not going to use shame. There is no shame, right? And and we're just going to create parity. And you need what we call these types of developers, menders. You need menders. And th I loved it. There was a whole um, podcast recently on Freakonomics about, you know, how much we need maintenance and then a follow-up one on incrementalization. And that's exactly what we do. And so we built our entire culture around what menders need. And it's been really successful and it's been incredibly rewarding as someone who is a mentor to, to work in a place where you feel valued rather than feeling ashamed for enjoying the work you do. And also kind of like detectives, one of the things that you mentioned is in, in another podcast is that you have to look at clues to figure out what was happening. So I'm curious, looking at legacy code, what, what are some of the things that you have learned about building products? Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I think, you know, really understanding the timing of technical debt and how just like capital for building a business have to go into debt almost a little bit to, to bring products to market sometimes. So sometimes I have seen companies just hobbled by their unwillingness to take on technical debt 
And I've also seen companies hobbled by their unwillingness to pay off technical debt. And so it's recognizing that when you are in the very early stages of a business and you don't have a lot of users and there's not a lot of risk, then experimentation, have at it, go, 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 go as fast as you can, build those prototypes, try all sorts of new things. And as you add more users and as your company becomes or your product becomes more, you get more market interest, then there you reach an inflection point where your technical de- debt will then, instead of helping you, it's going to hinder you. And the same thing happens in a traditional business. And I think part of it is like I went to school for business, so I understand this concept really well, is that, you know, there there comes a point where you just, you, you can't stay in debt forever. You can't have no revenue or no profit forever, right? You eventually have to turn things around. And that's the same thing with, with legacy code. Um, and I would say the way that you pay off legacy code is, you know, kind of through an incremental process, right? It's, it's not this like, I'm going to stop all feature development for three months and just clean up my, my code base. It's very much a, every time I go in and touch the code, I'm going to make it a little bit better. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's recognizing the systems that will, that will help you transform something over time. And one of the other things that I saw Scott mention was that the, if you build it, they will come, wasn't a viable marketing strategy. Right. <laughs> so, so, so now I'm more curious about when you came on board as CEO, what did you find was a good and viable marketing strategy for Corgi Bytes? You know, it took a long time for us to, to stumble on that. And I mean, we... How long approximately? Uh, like years? Years. I would wow. say it took about five, six years. And I think, you know, you, you see this with kind of any successful business. Like if you talk to, like, you know, I remember reading Dropbox and it's like once they reached their inflection point, everybody was talking about them as an overnight success. And they're like, yeah, but we've been working on this project for 10 years, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So, so I think there's, um, you know, for us, the first business model that we tried out, because I basically said, okay, Scott, what you've built, he, he wrote a program in Objective-C that, um, basically was uh, it would put leaves on a tree in the form of letters like you would type in a word and he called it a word tree he had actually built it for his um, his mother's graduate degree thesis and I was like well that doesn't provide any value like you haven't looked at your audience so the first thing we did is said okay what do people need and this was in 2009 2010 so the app store had just launched and we were like okay well people are going to need help building apps and I, you know, from talking to a lot of our friends who were independent graphic designers, the gap that we saw in the market was that there were tons of designers who had no idea how to code and they had no idea how to do user interfaces, but they knew design. And so our first business model was to be basically the um, two legs of a three-sided stool. So if you, if to build an application, you need visual design, content, and code, we said we will be an agency that does not have a designer and we will work with independent designers to help them launch um, applications. And we found that was, we had a lot of interest, but it was kind of this, um, you know, when you do a startup it's the how much would you actually pay you know we we had phrased some of the things wrong so people ended up asking us for a lot of equity work and things didn't pan out and so we got to the point where it just we couldn't pay our bills we we made it last for three years full time 
And then we eventually just had to say, okay, we've got to shut this down and recapitalize. So Scott and I both took consulting jobs for a year and a half while we kind of put the business on simmer. Like we kept the accounts. We still paid our taxes. Like we had a couple of side projects that we ran through. But for the most part, we we kind of went back and had our tail between our legs and said, oh, you know, that was fun. But now we want to family. Scott and I eventually got married too. And then we had we had two kids um, together. So we, we said, okay, well, now we've got to be a responsible grownups and, you know, we have to work for the man. And um, what was interesting was that working in a consulting company, going back to the tech sector after trying to run my own business, I just saw so many things that were wrong, like empathy. There was just a massive void of empathy. And then I, I read Brene Brown's work and Scott and I both around the same time, it was about a year and a half later, and we just said, all right, we've got to do this again. Like, I don't care if it works. We're going to make it work. And that really was the turning point. And we we started saying, okay, what really needs to happen? You know, we used all of the experience that we had built up over the past, you know, five years at that point. And, um, you know, and then kind of went in. And, and even then it was, you know, a year and a half and it was just me and Scott. Um, and so we really didn't, you know, we didn't bring on our first employee until about two years ago. And you know, we've gone from two employees to 12 in two years, and we're planning on going to about 30 in the next two years. So, you know, it's, it's been a long process, very rewarding and amazingly, you know, like gratifying. I get out of bed every day. I'm like, this is awesome. I love my job, but it took a long time to get there. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That's such a great story. And once you had the idea, how did you go about finding potential clients or did you already have them? Like, how does it work out? You have the business and... Yeah. So this is where I think my background in sales really helped. So we started very locally. So we reached out to our existing networks and we started just by testing out different hypotheses. So, I mean, we, we did things very, very lean. We are as bootstrapped as they come. I mean, my, my buy-in for this company was $50 just because I had to do something, right? So the, um, yeah, the, so we, we started by emailing people on LinkedIn and just saying, what are your problems with software? What's, what annoys you? And then we just said, well, what, how could we go in and fix it? And we tried different pricing models. We tried all sorts of different operational things. And, um, we really didn't bring on employees until we had some of that stuff figured out. Um, so like one example was, um, you know, Scott loves, loves, loves fixing bugs. And so one of our first kind of value propositions around this idea of fixing and mending was we will un-F your project. And that was our tagline for a little while. And we had a friend of ours who works at the co-working space that we do. And he has, he was doing a project. He's actually a statistician. So he had a project in PHP and he was like, okay, Scott, I've been banging my head against the wall for two weeks trying to find this bug. And so we had said, well, well, we experimented with fixed pricing where we said, okay, well, we'll, you know, $750 and however long it takes, that's how much it's going to take. Like, we'll just, we'll do it. And so our friend was like, yeah, that sounds great. And so Scott went in and he fixed the bug in under 10 minutes. And what happened was you would think that that person would have felt really grateful, but he felt really cheated. And he and so we were able to talk to him about it. And he's like, and we were like, well, you would still be working on this for however long. Like you were really frustrated. We leave that frustration. He goes, yeah, but I paid you seven hundred dollars for ten minutes worth of work. Like I just feel almost cheated in this way. And so we we incorporated that feedback into our pricing model. And, you know, that's why we do everything now, just time and materials, so no one feels cheated. Um, so we had to take into like 
account a lot of the psychology about, you know, how people feel. I, I sometimes say, like, there's a, um, there's a story that I heard when I was selling of, um, in building my consulting business, of a nuclear engineer who is the best in his field. And there's a company that has a nuclear reactor and it's melting down. And so they bring the guy in and he presses one button and they said, oh my God, thank you so much. You saved everybody's lives. Like we can't thank you enough. Just go ahead and send us a bill. And so he sends a bill for $10,000 and then they get really upset and they say, why did you send this for $10,000? All you did was push a button. I need you to send an itemized bill. And so he sent a bill and he said, pushing the button, $1, knowing exactly which button to push, $9,999. And I feel like that's a lot of what we face kind of in the Mender world is we're working directly with software developers and, and people who know how to code, you know, or at least know their, you know, they know the business logic of the system really, really well. And so we have to take into account that that feeling. Um, and so so some of those things have been um, have been the most challenging in building the business. It's not actually doing the technology because that is the kind of fun part for us, but it's been building the systems around how do we sell this as a business that is viable and generates cash flow and so that we can pay our employees and all of that. So, Or changing the mindset of people because, like you said, the bug was fixed in 10 minutes, but it's because there are years of experience exactly. from that person. So, I mean, it's really good quality that it was just solved in 10 minutes. I don't know. Maybe people can think like like doctors. You pay a lot, but there's years of training and years yeah. of experience. So something about the mindset, I think. Yeah, um, it, it was really fascinating. And, and just kind of, I think that's one of the things I love about owning my own business is diving into some of the social psychology of it too. Um, and that's what I really liked about marketing as well is because it's really about understanding people, right? And, you know, to me, marketing has never been about that sleazy salesperson. It is always about service and it is always about figuring out where people are frustrated and then finding ways to help them alleviate that frustration through really good products. Like Seth Godin has been really um, influential to me. And, you know, right out of college, I was reading a lot of his books about like Free Prize Inside and Purple Cow. And, you know, his books are super short. I totally recommend them to anybody who's building a business because the idea is like you have to build something that is remarkable. It is not enough to be average and then like put this spin on it. The way that you are truly successful is that you find something that you legitimately can say, I am the best in the world at this. And I can legitimately say that the 12 people I have on my staff, I legitimately feel that they are the best in the world in working on legacy code and, you know, myself included, and, and I'm helping build that community around changing those ideas. But it took a really long time until I felt like I could answer that with a confident yes. And it's not something that happens overnight, right? It's something, anything that you build, it's going to take years of figuring out and trying things and failure. I saw a, a thing yesterday. It was um, along the street and it said, a, a mistake is proof that you've tried something. Yes. Oh, and I, I like just thought that. that was so good. Yeah, it is. Uh, I love that quote. Because like as a woman, I know I had a really hard time wrapping my head around failure. And like, I was really confused because Scott was really into agile when we first got started. He's like, well, we have to fail fast. And I was like, no, we don't want to fail at all. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Like, fail fast. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, we have to fail as fast as we can. I was, and, and 
it took me a long time to get comfortable and for us to really understand where the other person was coming from. And that's, I think, where a lot of women kind of get left out because there's the whole idea of the confidence gap that women feel like we have to be perfectionists to everything, that we can't culturally be seen as making a mistake. Um, you know, that, that men can t- make a mistake and they're seen as brave. Women make a mistake and they're perceived as incompetent. So, you know, there's, there is definitely cultural, you know, stuff against us. But at the same time, it's like, how do you couch your mistakes? And how do you learn from your mistakes? I had a class I took about art it's, I, in um, college. I took an art class because I, I went to one of the best visual art schools on the, um, in the United States, actually, Virginia Commonwealth University. I was like, well, this is such an amazing chance to take an art class. Let me do it. And so I did. And I sucked. I was so bad at painting. And the the way that we got graded was we had to write a paper for each piece. We had four different pieces that we wrote that we painted. And so I wrote a basically a, a five-page paper on each painting about what I had learned and what I did, what choices I made, what I learned. And if I were to paint this painting differently, here's what I would have done. And I ended up getting an A in the class, even though my paintings weren't very good, because I could demonstrate the learning and I could document my rationale. And I think that's something that that has been a skill that's been incredibly valuable. And I think we don't do enough in software. Yes, definitely. And actually, I want to talk about that um, before we finish skill sets for developers. So like we mentioned, soft skills are not explicitly taught at school compared to hard skills like math and computer science. So throughout uh, your career and your childhood, how did you develop those skills? Like one example is that painting class. Is yeah. there anything else that? Hmm. I think I just, you know, um, I think I also, so right out of college, you know, I was, I got my, I was working as a marketing consultant, but then I ended up moving to being a copywriter. So I, I kind of naturally had people telling me that I was good at writing, very similarly to people telling Scott that he was good at code. So I ended up getting a job at Capital One, and I worked there as a copywriter for three years. And there, I really learned. I mean, it was my daily job to come up with headlines for the different mailers that they went out for and write the letters for credit card and business loan solicitations. And... um you know, in that process, I learned that more than 75% of the job was not writing the copy. It had nothing to do with actually putting together the work. It was about documenting my rationale about why I thought that that writing would work and then archiving the performance. So like when I got there, nothing was archived and I was part of the project that helped us develop, um, a wiki template so that we could see trends over time about what was working and what wasn't. And I see that very much to the code, right? Like how much of your job are you spending talking, you know, like documenting your ideas about why you wrote this method this way? Yeah. Or talking to people. Exactly. Which is also one of the things Scott Hanselman said when he was asked, like, what do you look for in the resume or how do you make a resume good? And he said, Three things that matter. First, networking skills. Can you talk to people or are you just writing code? And then second, yeah. open source contributions. And then the third one is the actual resume, like school, yeah. grades. So what are some of the skills that you acquired in your career in sales? Because personally, I think sales is very difficult <laughs> and marketing. Seriously, I actually do. And 
what are some of the things that you have that you wish software engineers and developers could have so that they benefit? Is there anything? Oh, that's such a great... You are so good at these questions. Oh, I love this. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, so I think it comes down to a growth mindset. It comes down to the belief that you can do it. And um, I had to reconcile that because I, the place where I feel like an imposter is when I'm in the code, right? Because I came to it late and, you know, the least, <laughs> I am the person with the least amount of experience on our team. And so whenever people ask me if I'm technical, like I can, I can absolutely code. I can build apps. Like I can, I dive in, I contribute to mobs, you know, but that's where my imposter syndrome comes out is I don't feel like I'm technical enough. And I think that engineers unfairly, like if we look at the archetype of Scott, engineers are taught you don't have good social skills. You're good. You're just a code monkey, right? You're replaceable. You're a cog in the machine. And that is just as damaging as saying that women can't code. Because what it's done is it has meant that there is very little empathy in our culture and in our industry. And so I would say, like I went on vacation um, and we had in August and we had a big article come out in first round review. And it ended up coming out. I didn't know when it was going to come out, but it ended up coming out the week that I was on vacation. So I had my, one of our developers, Nikki, and she followed up with the leads that came in. And we, that article ended up hitting number one on Hacker News. It was like, we got flooded. And we had systems and we had frameworks for communication, just like you do with code. It's not, it's really not that different when you get down to it. When you get down to like the brass tacks of like how things work, you can be very analytical in your approach to communicating. And Nikki has closed two deals. And so, you know, and she's a software developer. And so she's getting commission on those, right? Rightfully so. So I think part of it is this belief of, oh, well, I'm an engineer, so I can't do X, Y, Z. Because that is the same others. as me being, I am a woman. I can't code. I can't be in tech. I shouldn't speak up, right? So the, it starts with the belief of like, okay, how can I do sales and marketing with integrity? And that's something I have always, always, always done. I, I do not sell anything. I don't believe in 100%. Um, or like you said, even legacy code, like people, there's no reason to tied that you work on legacy code or things like that, which is also what you mentioned earlier, empathy and then building this community. Yeah. Legacy code rocks. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. really is about feeling comfortable in what your contributions are, feeling comfortable in what you enjoy doing and finding that place where that is useful, right? And and finding some way to, to make that useful. So... Well, Andrea, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, this has been such a good, this is one of the best interviews I've ever done. Thank you so much for the, the really thought-provoking questions. Thank you. Thank you.